Welcome to Southbank Centre's book podcast. My name's Debo Amon, literature programmer here at Southbank Centre, and it's my pleasure to bring you Malcolm Gladwell Talking to Strangers, presented in partnership with Penguin Live and recorded at Southbank Centre's Queen Elizabeth Hall. I've only ever really known cities, mostly London, but also others. On occasion, I leave to somewhere else, less cosmopolitan. I've missed the sea, this sea, the possibilities it holds, the constant ability to discover new things and the people that make or bring them. London is a sea of over 8 million strangers and that's part of the beauty and the struggle. We collide into each other, project ourselves onto one another and find ourselves lost in translation, sometimes with dire consequences. Malcolm Gladwell's Talking to Strangers illuminates this in a way that only he can, by finding a shared language that makes us a little less strange to one another. That said, I really can't think of anyone better to be in conversation with Malcolm than journalist and broadcaster Afua Hirsch. Afua is a former barrister and author of two best-selling books, British, On Race, Identity and Belonging, and Equal to Everything, about the UK Supreme Court. It's not too often that I've received an email and felt the urge to do the diddy dance in the office, but the idea of Afua and Malcolm in conversation meant I was just delighted when she said yes. Now, please enjoy the podcast with Malcolm Gladwell and Afua Hirsch. We haven't met before, so I'm very conscious of talking to a stranger and relying on my judgment. <laughs> in the context of a book that does more than any other I've read to make me question the accuracy of my ability to judge. But you went through some of the scenarios you discuss in the book, fascinating stories about counterintelligence and espionage. But the book is really sandwiched, begins and ends with this case that I certainly followed with great interest. I think many people felt mm-hmm. very passionate about, and that's the case of Sandra Bland. Mm-hmm. Just explain why you chose the case of Sandra Bland, as it really feels the, like the almost the moral and narrative core of this book. Yeah. There were those string of very high-profile cases in the United States starting in 2014 with Ferguson, remember, the death of Michael Brown at the hands of a young black man at the hands of a police officer. And following on that, it seemed like every month for three years, there was another case, and they were in the headlines, and they were a source of great national anguish. And the case of Sandra Bland was one of those cases. It was a young African-American woman who had driven down from Chicago to rural Texas for a job interview. And as she's leaving she's pull- the job interview, she's pulled over by a police officer on the flimsiest of pretexts, because she fails to use her turning signal. They have an exchange that grows heated and he ends up dragging her out of the car, arresting her, putting her in jail, and then she hangs herself three days later. And the whole exchange between them is captured on tape. Unlike a lot of these cases, which are invariably murky, there's no dispute about what happened. And you can go online and watch it. It's unbelievably heartbreaking, but it is this kind of object lesson in misunderstanding, because um, the police officer in particular, but to some extent Sandra Bland, they, mostly the police officer completely misunderstands and misinterprets and he does everything wrong. And you're left with watching this with this overwhelming question, which is, how is that possible? How can two people 
They're having a normal, they both speak the same language, but the conversation just goes completely off the rails based on those misunderstandings. You develop the theory of the mismatch elsewhere in the book with reference to Amanda Knox, which is a case obviously that in Britain had a special resonance. Mm. This idea, I mean, you talk about them speaking the same language, but it's almost as if they're not speaking the same language because they are so badly misinterpreting mm. each other's actions. How does mismatch fit into your analysis? Yeah. So Levine, this guy Tim Levine, who, whose work I really kind of fell in love with when I was writing the book, He's obsessed with this question of why are human beings so bad at detecting lies, which has obsessed psychologists for generations. And his answer is the default to truth idea, that when we're trying to spot a liar, we, we make mistakes because we're just always assuming the person is telling the truth. We're not, it's not that we're wildly guessing. We're just saying, I look at you, I just think, I don't know, I think she's truthful. But then he digs into it and he says, you know, there's a, it gets even more interesting because as it turns out, there are a portion of people who all of us get right, and those are the terrible liars. But at the same time, there's a category of people who all of us get wrong. And the people who all of us get wrong are people he calls mismatched, and they are people whose facial expressions and body language does not match our expectations about what someone experiencing a certain set of emotions is supposed to do. So. Somebody who, when they are happy, doesn't smile, is mismatched. I, I tell a story in a book about my father once when my, he was on holiday with my mother and he heard her scream and he, he's in the shower. He comes running out and he sees a young man with a knife to my mother's throat. And my father, 75 years old and naked, points at the man and says, get out now. And the guy runs away. Now, th there are several bizarre things about the story. One is that my parents only told me this story. You know how when your parents get back from holiday and they call you up and they re recount what happened? Half an hour in, <laughs> they get around to telling me, and oh, the, oh, and by the way, we had quite an exciting evening. Um, but that aside, the question is, why does the guy run confronted with a 75-year-old naked man? One explanation given to me actually is that nobody wants to fight a naked man, which, <laughs> which is actually, I can't, I, I, I can't dispute that. As a, that is about as parsimonious an explanation. But my explanation, which is more complex, is that my father is actually extraordinarily mismatched. So he was terrified in that moment, but my father would never, fear did not show up in his face. It just was not. Imagine this poor young man with the knife confronted with, <laughs> the dripping wet naked 75-year-old man who looks like a psychopath, who's like, get out now, right? I was like, oh my, I mean, it just must have violated every preconception the hoodlum, the young hoodlum had about the elderly. And that's a kind of dramatic version of something that happens to us all the time with the mismatch. And Amanda Knox is mismatched. Did it feel risky to delve into something as emotive as Black Lives Matter and take the specific characteristics of the two people involved in Sandra Bland's case. Her, this woman who was frustrated because she had a history of being stopped by the police and maybe 
hadn't reacted in the way most conducive to de-escalating situation. And this police officer who was also a bully, as you describe him, and, and also handled it badly. It's mm. quite unusual to tackle that from an individual perspective. And much more often we think about these in terms of structures of racism and policing. But you've really gone into the characteristics mm -hmm. of the people. And I, I found that fascinating, but at the same time wondered whether in asking those individual questions, is there a risk of being complicit in justifying the ways that people behave when there's a systemic analysis as well? Yeah. Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, I was strongly motivated in my discussion of the Sandra Bland case by two things. One was a book that was written by a criminologist named Frank Zimring very prominent criminologist, in which he examined the history of civilian interactions, particularly deaths, and law enforcement in the United States, and pointed out two things. One is that um, a, roughly 1,000 people in America die every year at the hands of police. Innocent, not, we're not talking about, you know, mm -hmm. uh, bank robbers shot by police, but in the course of otherwise relatively harmless encounters. And two, that that number is way out of whack with the rest of the world on a per capita basis, and three, that it's, it's been going on forever and shows no sign of slowing down. And that may be, that book really radicalized me in the sense that I came to believe the way we were talking about these cases was wholly inadequate to the scale of the problem. Um, and the second thing was this brilliant essay written by a, a black historian, University of Chicago, about um, what he called the Southern style in American um, racial discussion. And the Southern style, in his definition, was that uh, what white Southerners historically in the South have tried to do whenever racially charged questions come up is to make it entirely about the, um, the, the specifics of the, the social specifics of the two people having the encounter. Did, was there some dark racist thought in the hearts of one of the two people talking was, and their whole argument is, all this stuff would go away if we simply got along with each other. That's the white Southern argument. And this historian's critique of that was, they want to change the subject in that way because they don't want to talk about big issues. They don't want to talk about voter suppression or segregation or redlining, bank redlining, or any rate, or the, the broader ways in which racism conditions people's actions. They want to say, oh, it's just about how Mr. Smith um, is being nasty to um, his fellow black citizen or his fellow white citizen. Um, and he's, this guy basically said, enough with that. Let's just, let's move on from that kind of very shallow analysis. And I was trying to be in that spirit a little bit. And I wanted to say, um, can we talk about this incident of Sandra Bland in a different way that maybe helps us prevent these cases from happening in the future? Um, and let's stop treating these as um, these kind of uh, uh, curiosities, social curiosities, which is the way they're treated. They're like, oh my, that police officer is a bad person. Right, tut tut. Well, where does that get you? Get you anywhere, right? Um, and I, you know, particularly in America, there is an aversion 
um, to having what I consider to be a real conversation about these problems. Um, and, you know, the, uh, uh, the conclusion of, the, um, of that, in that famous essay, is that the Southern style won in America. Um, and I think that's probably true. And I'm, I'm sort of anxious to counteract that. And another quite systemic analysis you offer of policing in America, which I found fascinating, related to coupling, mm -hmm. which is another of the big theories in the book. And it kind of ranges in your classic digressive style from Sylvia Plath's suicide and gas heater suicide statistics to the ways in which policing fails to understand the specificities of a particular community and that you don't police a low crime community in the same way as you police a high crime community. Can you just explain how coupling fits into this? Yeah. This subject of talking to strangers. So I was trying to understand ultimately what is the real reason that encounter between Sandra Bland and the police officer um, went awry. And the ultimate reason is the police officer should never have even, it's not that he shouldn't have stopped her, it's that he shouldn't even have been in the neighborhood at all. And this grows out of this really fascinating recent strain in policing, which has looked at the, the geographic distribution of crime. So suppose I ask you a question. If you would like to reduce crime in London over the next 12 months, I can give you two sources of information. I can give you the name of everyone in London who committed a crime over the last 12 months, or I can give you the address where every crime in London was committed over the last 12 months. You can only have one of those two databases. Which do you think would be more useful to you? Historically, the answer would be, you want the names of all the criminals. The new people, the new analysis says, no, you actually don't. What you want is the addresses. The cr criminality turns out to be very closely coupled to place. So the same neighborhoods, not just neighborhoods, the same street segments, blocks, uh, in cities account for an extraordinary percentage of the crimes year in, year out, for years and years and years. The way this is expressed statistically is over 50% of the crime takes place on less than 2% of the city's blocks. Right? What that says is that if you would like to have your police officers engage in proactive, as they say, aggressive policing, it is only justified on 2% of the city blocks. Everywhere else, it is likely to cause more harm than good. Malcolm, I want to ask you about your identity. Because we're here in London. Mm -hmm. You have English heritage. I do. Do you feel English at all? Well, my, uh, I do. My father was from Kent. And I like to think of him um, in my memory. He is past. But in my memory, he is the quintessential English, Englishman. So he was, I'm going to now indulge in a series of cultural stereotypes, which are egregious, but nonetheless <laughs> true. Um, my father was a uh, introverted, reserved, dog-loving, gardening, long walks in the rain person who only was moved to tears when reading Dickens aloud to his children. That's, <laughs> now, how could I not be English <laughs> with such a father? <laughs> so not only do you have English heritage, but you have quintessentially English heritage. Quint, 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 no one was more, 
I like to think more English than my, you went to, my father went to, you know, uh, met my mother at, at University College. And your mother has Jamaican heritage. Yes. So you're something of a, a citizen of the world, as our former prime minister so uh, famously put it. Yes, that, as, as are you, we are. <laughs> are we not birds of a feather in this respect? Well, actually, it's funny you say that. We do have a few things in common, because um, your father was a scientist. My father's a scientist, or was originally. Um, we both have white English fathers and black mothers. Yes. And you became a journalist, not hugely successfully initially, uh, from the way I've heard you describe it, but to huge acclaim no, no, after true, a while. True, true. And uh, without giving away too much, I can also relate to that experience. Yeah. Um, and we are, I, you know, we're, just parenthetically, um, for the longest time, I was fascinated by the difference between uh, biracial people with. Uh, black mothers and biracial people with white mothers. Do you have a theory about that? Well, it's just that we're the traditional kind, right? We are the traditional yes. kind. Old school. We're like, you know, in the day, the man was always white, right? In the biracial <laughs> Right. Union. You mean kind of from an imperial exactly. history context. Exactly. Whereas that is true. The radical thing <laughs> is where the father's black. That's the cool biracial. But that... The, but that <laughs> Not to get into too much grainy detail, but, but that's not that radical here because that is the more common Yeah, but it's scenario. radical historically. Right. How, how, I mean, in, in the grand scheme of, human history, of modern human history, let's just do the last thousand years, right? The number of black father, white mother pairings until 1950, True. vanishingly small, right? So I always felt like I was... Traditionally biracial. I, I, want, I don't want to say I was disappointed <laughs> in my parents, but had, had it been reversed, I would just would have, it just, I mean, my whole life would have been, I mean, I would have floated effortlessly towards great, greater things. Were there any defining moments where you felt that force of being racialized in America? I read you talking about when you grew your hair and mm -hmm. how that suddenly changed the way that people behave towards you. Yeah, that was weird. This is unusual. I cut it all off just because, why not? Uh, there was a period where it was short for a long time, and then I, in the kind of, I want to say 90s, I really, really, really aggressively grew it out, just as for fun, and then was astonished at how differently I was treated by the world. In many ways, in good ways, suddenly people thought that I was uh, much more interesting and, um, than I really am. For anyone who hasn't seen it, Malcolm has a very healthy fro when, I had when big, he chooses to. In the day, quite a fro. And, but I also would get stopped by cops all the time. To the, and to the point it became, you know, I got a little glimpse. It's nothing, of course, like the, the experience of many African-Americans in America, for whom this is a daily, and not a joke. I mean, it's a kind of daily imposition, but I got a little whiff of it. Enough that I, once again, I was reminded like, wow, this is a weird country in many ways. Um, and it differs where you are as well in, the, in America. You know, there's a, I would even see massive, where you are in New York City makes a difference in how you're treated. Or the difference between Atlanta and Boston is light years. Um, and you begin to, you know, it's, a, it's a kind of a fascinating, um, it made me, the most recent incarnation of this is that I have, my greatest affection now in America is for cities that have, that are the most kind of advanced in terms of their racial balance. Once you understand that Atlanta is one of the few cities in America where 
there really is a kind of rough racial equality. It's a whole different experience. It's really weird. It's one of the few cities where there isn't that heavy weight or the extent of, to which there is racial consciousness. It's very positive. It's not, um, it doesn't have that kind of sad, dead weight. As opposed to say, you know, you drive an hour and a half from Atlanta and you're in Birmingham, and Birmingham quite literally is a city that there is a mountain in the middle of the city and the white people live on the mountain and the black people live at the bottom of the mountain and every morning the white people drive down the mountain to go to work and the white people drive up the mountain to work in the white people's homes. It's the craziest, so it's Mercedes down the hill and like Hyundai's up the hill every morning. You go there and you're like, I can't believe this is happening. Like it's, it's just the craziest. Literal. And it literally, it's a mountain and the higher you go up in the mountain, like the bigger the houses and the wider the occupants. Right? So you and I are like midway at the mountain at best. Well, I was going to say, where they do you, you, where do you? They would let you up, sort of. They would say, this far maybe, no further. Where, I was going to ask where you fit into this crazy dynamic, because I was thinking of you actually when, um, I think it was Jeff Sessions or another Trumpian politician said, was asked about the Trump administration's attitude towards illegal immigrants and the, the, the as we all know, the policing of the southern border, the wall, and somebody asked him, why do you put all of your resources on the southern border? Why not the northern border? And he said, everyone knows illegal immigrants don't come from Canada. And um, I know you were an illegal Canadian I was immigrant. an illegal immigrant. And that. apparently, <laughs> Canadians are the biggest group of illegal immigrants in America, contrary yeah. to what the Trump administration We're very stealth. believes. My, um, <laughs> my, uh, I was caught. I was illegal for a while, and then I was caught. And so I was caught at the airport, and I didn't have my story straight. And they turned me around and said, you got to go back to Canada. And I had a job and everything. And I said, oh, I have a doctor's appointment. Literally said this. I have a doctor's appointment on Thursday. Can I just stay till Thursday? And the guy's like, okay, okay. Just show up. Just make sure you show up, and we'll deport you after your doctor's appointment. So I go to my doctor's appointment, and I... I quit my job and I rent out my apartment and I sell off my belongings and I go to the immigration service. You actually showed up. Oh yeah. And <laughs> I go there and I, you, they wait, you wait for like three hours and I was called in for my meeting and the guy looks at me like long and hard and he starts shuffling through papers and finally he said, I have no idea who you are or why you're here but I've lost your file. <laughs> and whenever people say to me that the inefficiency of government bureaucracy is somehow a threat <laughs> to human freedom. I say, no, 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 actually, you have it backwards. <laughs> you really want bureaucracy to be inefficient. Um, so that's why I'm here, really. Do you feel that this unique kind of background, really, because it is quite mm. a unique combination of different heritage influences, uh, professional experiences, has, is that what has shaped your particular brand of contribution to humanity? Uh, maybe. Uh, yes, I'm sure in part. It's very, you know, it's very difficult, not very good at introspection. Um, but I suppose that's true. Uh, I think that uh, it's always easier. I mean, I, we were joking earlier. Would you joke when you said only you can say that when I was saying that Jamaicans have high regard for themselves. Um, you know, when you have multiple identities, that means you have multiple permissions. 
So I can, I can get away with stuff, I suppose, that other people may feel more constrained about. And it also helps that I think of my success as a writer as so ludicrously improbable that I don't think I have anything to lose. So I never worry about, I think a lot of writers, particularly now, have become very afraid of saying things that are outside the mainstream or I'm, I don't, I've never understood that. So I think that kind of freedom that comes from being sort of an outsider, B, not feeling I have much to lose, and C, being kind of thick-skinned, I suppose. And that, hasn't, that sense hasn't diminished as you blatantly have got more to lose because you now have a huge no. reputation and sold millions of books. Do you so still is, feel liberated in that way? This is a very interesting... So you've put your finger on... Little, a social paradox that I have, have incredible difficulty with. So let me explain. Logically, the richer you are, the less you should care about your ta how high your taxes are, right? You're rich. Yet, when you observe rich people in the wild, <laughs> you, you will know that rich people spend more time talking about and worrying about taxes than anyone else, right? Didn't make Absolutely. any sense. Crazy. When was the last time you had a long discussion with someone who was poor about how high their taxes are? They don't talk, they're not talking about other stuff. It's the rich people who talk, literally when they get together, every now and again I'm at a gathering of very rich people. I'm not making it up. It's what they talk about. Taxes. I, I move, they, some guy will, you'll be talking to some billionaire hedge fund guy and you're like, oh, I noticed you just moved from New York City to Boca Raton in Florida. And he goes, yeah, yeah. I said, why would you move? Oh, the taxes in New York. I'm like, Boca Raton, it is such a culture. It's not even a cultural backwater. Because it suggests, <laughs> if it is a backwater, that there was some culture to be back. <laughs> it's just horrible. It's like, why would you do that to yourself? You're rich. Similarly, you were saying, well, if you're, and you're right. Many people think, well, if you are successful, then you would become more conservative in what you say because you would worry about jeopardizing your success. No, the opposite's true. If you're successful, you can do whatever you want. Wait, you're successful. Like, wait, that's the whole point, right? The, if you want to wake up in the morning and like write about, you know, rugby, you can do that. You're successful. I don't know anything about rugby, but like, who's going to stop me? No, right? So it's like, this is one of these curious, I've never understood like, People's failure to take advantage of the freedom that is offered to them in various ways. The rich people think it's more weird than the... It just is really odd the way they... The odd thing about rich people who are rich is they spend their whole lives getting really rich and they spend almost no time thinking about how to be rich. So they're really bad at being rich. So like if you go on and you look at like the houses they buy, they're really hideous. You're like, why would you... Why would you live in a hideous house? You're rich. <laughs> Buy somewhere tasteful. <laughs> I feel like there could be another book in the poor taste you, of rich You live people. in L.A. now. The L.A. is... A an excellent case study for the case above. Case in point. <laughs> what are they thinking? Drive up, drive, drive up into the hills of Bel Air and just take a, take a look at some of those houses. It's like unbelievable. Money cannot buy taste. Yeah. I see your relaxed approach to risk in some of your writing. And I think in this book, I felt like you did do some quite high risk things. So for example, it's quite an emotional roller coaster, this book, because one minute you're in this really fast paced spy thriller, and the next minute you're 
looking at Hitler, and then suddenly you're dealing with a pedophile. And you apply the same quite dispassionate forensic analysis to all of these scenarios. Was that deliberate that you approach all of these stories in the same way, with the same kind of tone and the same kind of theory, including quite sensitive issues yeah. that I'm sure you anticipate people will find difficult to read about? Well, I was aware of two things. One is that um, I did tackle a lot of subjects which border on, not taboo is too strong, but you know, the chapter about drinking and sexual assault. Brock Turner, the famous the college famous, sexual assault yeah, case. Um, which is a complicated topic to talk about, um, but I think an important one. And I was very aware that I had to walk a, a very narrow line to make it clear that I was not saying that alcohol is an excuse uh, for this kind of criminal and immoral behavior. So but, this is a chapter that analyzes the effect alcohol has in particular on interactions between strangers yeah. and why it is that it is often disastrous. Yeah. Why is it when you go to a college and you ask the people who run the college to talk about the cases of sexual assault on campus and as is what I did when I started that chapter, I went around America and had dozens of conversations with people on universities and I said, tell me about the problem that you have with sexual assaults and they said, first of all, you should know that the problem is epidemic and getting worse and then they said, the next thing you should know is that virtually every case we see involves alcohol. Two people are almost always drunk. And they, then they'll say, but don't ever quote me saying that. So that was interesting. And that's because of the perception that if you talk about the level of alcohol consumption, you might be victim blaming. Yeah. Uh, which I think is, uh, uh, you don't have to talk about it that way. You needn't. You do need to be careful when you talk about it. But it is very, very important to say that there is virtually no scenario by which we can bring the epidemic of sexual assault on campus under control without addressing the problem of excessive drinking, right? So if you think about it in terms of how do we solve the problem, not how do we, how, not, not how do we apportion blame, it's clear that where a blame ought to be apportioned in 99% of cases, you have a young man behaving in a way that is both immoral and criminal. That's where blame lies. And, and if that man is drunk out of his mind, he, it, that doesn't diminish his responsibility for his actions. In fact, it accentuates it. He chose to imbibe a drug which dramatically increased his chances of engaging in criminal behavior, right? You're responsible for that. And if we don't hold people responsible for that choice, we're in trouble. The other way of thinking about it is, all right, this is out of control. How do we solve the problem? And one way you solve the problem is to say to both, both parties, don't get blackout drunk, because that's really dumb and it's going to increase your chances either of behaving like a criminal or being the victim of a criminal. You can have that conversation, I think, in an honest and common sense and appropriate way. And I think I do that in the book, and I was very careful to, do, to have that conversation, in a, I think, in, while respecting all of the sensitivities around it. But that's why when you talk about the dispassionate tone, if you're going to ha engage in those areas, you have to be super careful. I want to ask you a bit of a left field question. Is this book, um, maybe unintentionally, maybe intentionally, a case for automation? Because I'm thinking particularly of the example you use of judges making terrible decisions 
when it comes to bail hearings, sentencing, this idea that you look someone in the eye, you get a measure of what kind of person they are, and that helps you assess their character and come to a good conclusion. And you show quite devastatingly that human character analysis is so flawed, we're so bad at reading strangers, that uh, we are massively beaten by machines whenever mm -hmm. that comparison is undertaken. Similarly, you make the point about nannies. You know, nobody would hire someone to look after their child without meeting them, looking them in the eye, analyzing their body language. But actually, none of those things are remotely accurate or reliable as indicators of somebody's character. That's the case for automation. Yeah. No, no parent, no young parent has ever taken my advice to stop meeting the nanny before hiring them. Um, but I stick by it. Um, what is it that you expect to learn from meeting the nanny face to face that's a reliable predictor of the nanny's ability as a nanny, right? Is there a trait called nanniness that manifests itself very quickly and easily in someone's demeanor? It's like, oh, uh, it's nice to meet you. You well, have that nanny air about you. You're nanny-ish. I think we're going <laughs> to... Presumably, if someone has all kinds of dark, sociopathic designs on your children, they would go out of their way to hide that fact from you. True. They're not going to announce when they meet you things might go awry at some point during the evening <laughs> when you best get home quickly. No. So what exactly are you learning? So I've asked a lot of young parents this question. And their answers are so uniformly lame. Um, one guy, a serious, very reputable social psychologist, Adam Grant, a friend of mine. Um, Adam said, oh, I really am really interested in how they, how they drive up the driveway. I never thought to include that in my, in my analysis. What's the thinking? I could, I said, Adam. I'm sorry, you're a brilliant man. I have no disrespect <laughs> for you. That's just lunacy. Now, the only legit argument I've heard is, well, you'd want to know whether there was alcohol in their breath. Okay, I'll buy that. But that raises another question, which is how many people who are pursuing a career in nannyhood <laughs> think that their ability to deal with young children is enhanced by being drunk? I find out really, that's just kind of, I would have thought that the two worlds, people who think their abilities are enhanced by being drunk and the desire to be a nanny, I wouldn't think they would overlap much. Um, uh, and also, yeah. So I don't think you should, I think you should spend all your time talking to the references. Don't, just work the phones. If, the references are good, then just hire them sight unseen. I mean, why bother with anything else? References are the great, are the thing that like, in, in almost any job, really that's all you should be doing, right? Everything else is nonsense. Like, think about this. You, you're asked to write a profile of someone that, and your job is to get to the heart of them and you have a choice. You can spend an unlimited amount of time with, the, not unlimited, you can spend 10 hours with the subject or 10 hours with the subject's friends and family and coworkers. No contest. No contest. No contest, no contest right? So why is it that when we're hiring people for very serious jobs, we do exactly the opposite? So think about this. Here you are in England, about to have an election. <laughs> you want to get to the heart of, say, one of the candidates, Mr. Johnson. Don't you think that, do you guys have 
Do you have debates? You're going to have debates? Yeah, we have already had uh, several. Debate, yeah. Why have the debate? That's an it's crazy. <laughs> you, the one thing you have in spades is evidence of Boris Johnson's speaking ability. You don't need more evidence. What you need is to have a debate that involves all of his ex-wives, <laughs> former... I am ready. Ready. <laughs> co-workers. That... So ready. I'd want to get his siblings up there. That's useful. Really useful. I mean, forget the election. That would make phenomenal TV, apart from anything else. Um, and I have a round of applause for Malcolm Gladwell. Please. That's it for this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the South Bank Centre Books podcast in all the usual places. For more information about upcoming events, go to southbankcentre.co.uk or look us up on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram.